This podcast is for general information only. It is not intended as a substitute for general health care services. If you have medical conditions, you need to see your doctor. Use of this information is at the user's own risk. Welcome to FitRx with Dr. Greg Dennis. Join me as we challenge the standard sick model of healthcare. This is your source for everything health, wellness, prevention, fitness, biohacking, and more. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of FitRx. Uh, I am uh, honored today to be interviewing Dr. Nadir Ali. Uh, Dr. Ali is a practicing interventional cardiologist in the Houston area. And what I like about him is he is a cardiologist who really utilizes lifestyle. Specifically, he emphasizes kind of higher fat, low carb. Uh, yes, you heard that right. A cardiologist who emphasizes high fat, low carb. So I'm anxious to talk to him about that. I, I really wanted to talk to him today just about cholesterol. And so he is definitely an expert on the subject. And so we are going to dispel a lot of myths and uh, really learn all about cholesterol today. So Dr. Ali, welcome to the show. I'm happy to be with you, uh, Dr. Dennis. Uh, Greg, if, my call, if I may call you. Oh, please. Yes. Okay. Uh, well, I, this is what I love doing. Awesome. Well, we appreciate your time today. So... Let's start today. Just, you know, tell us, tell us a little bit about you, about your career, how you kind of transitioned over into recommending more kind of higher fat, low carb diet, because there, there are not very many practitioners out there who do that, let alone a, a cardiologist who do that. So just, just kind of tell us a little bit about you and how you got into this space. Sure. And I may have said this story a few times and I would try to make it a little concise uh, because we need some time for some important discussion. But I've been doing low-carb medicine now for almost eight years, and I stumbled onto it relatively by mistake. Uh, I've always been a cyclist for many, many years, and I have exercised up to about 10 to 15 hours every week on my bike. And back in 2012 or so, I noticed that I was getting into the 170s, 180 pounds, and I was never there. And I'm a pretty determined guy. I like to keep my weight down. I like to be a model for my patients and say, hey, this is what we should do. And I was a traditional cardiologist at that time. Um, I found myself to be a very good interventional cardiologist. What that means is that I could take somebody with a blocked blood vessel, put a stent and open it. I could take somebody who's having a heart attack, take them to the cath lab, open up their blood vessels with a stent. And I found myself being so good doing that, that I didn't feel the need to really practice in an office setting. And whenever I attempted to practice in an office setting, I was pretty disillusioned. And the reason for that is that my patients were not improving. They were getting more obese. They were getting becoming diabetic, their diabetes was getting worse. I could treat their cholesterol with medications, but I never really saw a consistent benefit. They would come in complaining of achy joints, achy back, muscles not working, them feeling fatigued, having this mental fog. And I said, you know, the office does not work. I used to tell my colleagues, you know, I don't really want to be in the office. I will fix them when they have a blockage in the cath lab. And I, and I was really very good at that. And all of this changed when it came to my own personal journey, because no matter what I tried, I could not shake the weight off. It would come off for a few months and then it would pile right back on. And mind you, this is when somebody is cycling upwards of a thousand miles a month. And at right at around that time, I was listening to a podcast from an Australian low-carb doctor called Zishan Arian. And that was the time of Tour de France and Chris Froome had some reports that he had dropped his weight but did not drop his power by becoming a low-carb athlete. And that one podcast that I was listening, it was really in December. It was like the Christmas time. And I remember talking about the metabolism of fat and how our body uses fat and about how insulin and carbohydrates interact. And that was like an epiphany for me. And I said, look, if this is the case, why did I know? Why did I not know this? Let me try this. 
And when I tried that in three months, I was down to about 160 farms. And then over time, I've gone down to about 145, 150, and have remained there for the last five years. So I said that if this is happening in me, why can I not try that in my patient? And when I started trying that in 70-year-olds, 80-year-olds, even 90-year-olds, for one reason or the other, I've always had a very good rapport with my patients. And my patients really want to follow my advice. And I saw about 50% of my patients coming back with weight loss, feeling better, giving up their walkers, reducing their medications. And that was a no-look-back moment for me. And I said, you know, what I have done, I'm a very good interventional cardiologist, but I'm a lot more effective in this field. And that's when I started a nutritional seminar for my patients. I went all in into this. I started creating YouTube videos and one thing led to another. And here I am. And I feel like I'm somewhat of a veteran in this field, even though the field is very young and there are, you know, big heroes from whom I have learned and and colleagues from whom I have learned. So I don't want to take the credit by any means, but that's been my journey. And we can expand on that further as far as it relates to cholesterol, because that's my wheelhouse. Well, before we get into cholesterol, I'm just wondering what difference have you seen in patients practicing this way? Obviously, you know, it causes weight loss, but what have you seen from a cardiovascular perspective you know, when patients grasp onto this concept? There is a, a very significant change. And the change is on multiple levels because I fell into the practice of low-carb, intermittent fasting, physical exercise, vitamin D, and the importance of vitamin D. And now I'm modulating and improving that further by talking about heart rate variability, resting heart rate, and sleep. So I think that when you approach a holistic concept of health because cardiac disease is not just one faceted aspect of person's life. You know, you, for example, you could fix your nutrition, you could fix your fasting, you could fix your exercise and still end up with progression of coronary disease. You know, I don't know if you've heard about coronary calcification. Coronary calcification is an indication that you're building plaque in the blood vessels and in the majority of patients, you fix the first three, you reverse diabetes, you reverse heart disease, or you at least halt the progression of heart disease. Patients lose weight, they come off of diabetic medications, they come off of blood pressure medications. But about two thirds, I mean, sorry, about one fourth of them still have some degree of progression. So I don't want to blindside people and say that, hey, this is the know all. I mean, we know many aspects, many variables that can cause us to get degenerative vascular disease. And we are addressing a few of those. But in terms of answering your question, it is very gratifying to somebody like me if I see an 80-year-old patient come back who was on crutches, who was in a wheelchair, and they come back without their crutches, without their wheelchair, that they are 30 to 50 pounds lighter, that they have gone off their diabetic medications, that they stop taking their cholesterol-reducing medicines, that their blood pressure medicines are much lower, their quality of life is better. That is an extremely gratifying concept, and it creates a sense of purpose in practitioners like you and me. So that is what I would like to explain. You know, I challenge anybody to come to my practice, the doubters, the naysayers, Come to my practice and talk to my patients. Just sit in, this, uh, in the waiting room and listen to their stories. Come in the exam room with me and listen to what the patients have to relate. And you would understand the power of lifestyle and nutrition that as a medical profession, we are completely ignoring. We are so pharmaceutical driven. We are driven with a two to five minute visit with a patient. We don't even have time to listen to them. And modulating your practice and addressing these issues is going to be extremely gratifying. And if you don't do that, I think that you're going to get buggy whipped in about 10 to 15 years because medicine is moving towards the direction of gaining information. The consumer is getting information from YouTube, from podcasts, from the internet, 
Now it's very difficult for them to grasp that information, to assimilate it properly, to fit it into their own individual paradigm. And that's where the healthcare professional will come in and make it easier for them. But if we don't do that, traditional medicine, traditional healthcare delivery, as it's happening at primary care physicians, at cardiologists, it's, in my opinion, going to get buggy with. And that would not be the right thing for us. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, when I started practicing this way, it I really feel like it has revitalized my career because I was, I just felt like I was not helping people, just putting a, a Band-Aid on people and giving them medications and they weren't getting any better. And when I realized that I can reverse type 2 diabetes in a lot of cases and uh, reverse arthritis and people losing weight and in some cases even uh, uh, decrease or sometimes reverse autoimmune disease, it just really revitalized my career. And now I'm actually excited to come to work. Anyways, appreciate you sharing all that. So um, I'm sure if people listen to my podcast, they've heard, I, I really recommend uh, you know, I talk a lot about the effects of insulin and, and uh, decreasing carbohydrates. And so we want to replace carbohydrates with something. And so, you know, I, I recommend replacing that with fat. And I'm assuming you uh, agree with that as well, because you have a website called eatmostlyfat.com. So how does a cardiologist uh, recommend fat? Because we all know fat causes heart disease, right? Well, that is the traditional opinion and cholesterol and fat are the devil. And that opinion is, is wrong. And I think uh, slowly it's filtering into the mainstream that fat may not be as bad as we thought. And you are right, for the majority of patients who are insulin resistant, who are obese, who have metabolic syndrome, who are unhealthy, going on to a low carb diet with a combination of fasting and low carb, adding in movement or exercise, is the right thing to do. But just like you are a physician and you individualize healthcare for every patient, there is a subset of insulin resistant, metabolic, metabolically abnormal patients in whom there needs to be a short time frame of not just a low carb diet, but a low fat diet as well. So in other words, a lean protein diet. And we don't need to get into the weeds of that but I don't want to get accused by saying that I lump everybody into one category. But for the purposes of our discussion, you are absolutely right. Eating fat is the way our body is designed along with protein because increasing insulin levels repeatedly and often to high insulin level creates insulin resistance. And when you have high insulin levels, you downregulate the insulin receptor. You make the person not be able to burn fat. It locks the fat into the fat cells. It makes you gain weight. Insulin is anabolic. It makes you heavier. It makes you sicker. It increases your blood pressure. It increases the risks of vascular disease. So the intervention of cutting out your carbs, replacing those calories with fat calories, promotes satiety, reduces insulin levels, improves your glycemic or your blood sugar control, gives you the ability not to feel hungry, promotes the concept of going multiple hours, 16 hours, 18 hours, sometimes 24 hours without food comfortably. And intermittent fasting with low-carb diet is a cornerstone in which our biology is designed. And the more you practice that, the more health you are going to get. So absolutely endorse your viewpoint. Sure, okay. Well, let's get into cholesterol a little bit because as I recommend this type of diet to a lot of people, usually the first question is, what about my cholesterol? So what about cholesterol? <laughs> when somebody, when you put somebody on a lower carb, maybe a higher fat type of diet, what about cholesterol? And that's the $64 million question. And we are slowly getting the answers. Our investment in the low carb world is paying off. The way I start out is by first thinking about what cholesterol is. And cholesterol is an absolutely essential molecule for our body function. Every cell in our body has a cell membrane, an outer covering. 
An important component of that membrane is cholesterol. Without cholesterol in the cell membrane, the cell membrane will not be able to function. I'll give you a simple example. Insulin is a hormone, but it works through an insulin receptor. Our cells have insulin receptors through which insulin sits on it, creates some conformational changes or changes in the structure of the cell membrane through which several of insulin actions happen. The insulin receptor sits in a portion of the cell membrane that is cholesterol rich. So insulin receptor needs cholesterol. Bile acids that are important for us to absorb fat are made in the liver from cholesterol. The stress hormone called corticosteroids, the hormone that lets us deal with daily stress, getting out of bed, dealing with an emergency, that hormone is cholesterol derived. CoQ10, CoQ10 is an important molecule for muscle function. The way I describe it is that CoQ10 is like a spark plug for our muscles. If an engine does not have a spark plug, it cannot burn fuel. If muscles don't have CoQ10, they cannot burn sugar and fat. So in other words, CoQ10 is a cholesterol-derived molecule. The features that we have as men and women to large degree are based on testosterone and estrogens. What people don't realize is that the raw material for making testosterone and estrogens is cholesterol. The cholesterol is supplied to our gonads through the LDL, through the bad cholesterol, the so-called bad cholesterol molecule. Our brain functions, in other words, nerve transmission, will not happen without it being cholesterol rich. 25% of our body's cholesterol is in the brain. In fact, cholesterol is so important for the brain that it doesn't delegate the responsibility for the liver to make cholesterol for the brain. It makes its own cholesterol in cells that are called astrocytes. So this is just the tip of the iceberg of where cholesterol is important in our day-to-day -day life and in our biology. Now let's shift over and talk about LDL. Now LDL is considered to be the bad cholesterol. And I don't know why they call it that. Maybe they call it because the pharmaceutical company, the companies that make these statins make somewhere in the order of 20 to $40 billion a year. It's a lot of money. And it would be sort of good to label a molecule bad because then you can reduce it. Like for example, you go to a cardiologist and your LDL, the bad cholesterol is 150 and he informs you that this is associated with increased risks of heart disease. You are given a statin. You, you have a next visit and your LDL cholesterol has gone from 150 to about 80. There's a 45% reduction in your cholesterol. It's a nice feeling. It's a collective victory. It's a victory between the patient and the physician and they both rejoice it nicely. But the, what gets missed in the process is that the person complains of muscle ache, of fatigue, about mental fog. They've become heavier. They have become diabetic. So the question that comes about is that, why has this happened? Why are we not looking into it? And one of the reasons for that is that CoQ10 that helps the muscles is carried in the LDL cholesterol. When you reduce cholesterol in the cell membranes, you're going to let the insulin receptor not function as well. Now, there are several biochemical studies that attest to that. And there is clinical data that will help you figure that out as well. So nothing that I'm saying is not substantiated by some degree of evidence, either in basic science or in clinical trials. They get a little bit of mental fog. In other words, cognition and thinking is affected. Why is that happening? Now, all these things are not looked at or brushed aside because modern medicine doesn't permit that kind of an interaction between patient and physician. And as physicians, we have lost our critical thinking ability. We have relinquished everything to key opinion leaders, to our societies, whether it is the family medicine uh, academy, or whether it is American College of Cardiology or the Heart Association, and we are failing to critically evaluate what is happening to our patients. Because if you take a moment and you listen to your patients, you will hear them give you all kinds of complaints 
about the side effects of statins. And one example of that is that when it came time to move and start promoting another medicine that reduces cholesterol, which is an injectable form called PCSK9 inhibitors. So in other words, here is statins that reduce it, but this is a new kid on the block, which is PCSK9 inhibitor. The same experts that were recommending statin use and telling that statins have a very low incidence of side effects. Now, when they compare the two, they say, oh, there is about a 30% risk of getting myopathy with statins. And that's why you should consider PCSK9 inhibitors. So I think the paradigm through which we are viewing LDL cholesterol is essentially wrong. We are not viewing LDL cholesterol as something that biology designed to fight infections, to be an antioxidant. Because the LDL molecule that we think is bad, there is plenty of evidence that it neutralizes bacterial and viral protein. Just think about it, how important that is in this pandemic in which we have such a huge surge of viral infections, COVID infections. And if you look at the two countries that are the hardest hit from the COVID infections is the United States and the United Kingdom, which are the countries with the highest use of statins or uh, cholesterol-lowering medications. These are the two countries. So I'm not saying that there is a direct correlation. I do not know that. But for sure, it should give us pause and we should start looking and seeing, are we doing something wrong? And then I want to give you an opportunity to speak because I don't want to kind of now start delving into looking at the different cholesterol trials and tell you what minuscule benefit there is by using those. Yeah, well, so while we're on LDL, this idea that the lower the LDL, the better, that a lot of family family practice doctors and, and still a lot of cardiologists seem to adhere to, that the lower the better. I feel like not only is that not helpful, but in many cases may be harmful. And I've seen some stuff where you know, if we lower LDL enough, it can increase risk for Alzheimer's disease. You mentioned the immune function. I've seen some stuff, you know, where it can decrease the immune function. Is there a risk when we lower LDL too much? Absolutely. Um, it's if you go by tradition, mainstream medicine, they're not going to recognize that. All they're going to say is that if you reduce LDL below 50, you increase the risks of bleeding strokes to some degree. But if you look at demographic data, if you look at large populations of patients, take the HUNT trial in Europe, 50,000 patients followed for 10 years. The highest survival was in people with the highest cholesterol. And by the way, when you look at cholesterol, two thirds of that is always LDL cholesterol. So if your cholesterol is high, your LDL cholesterol is going to be high. You can look at a similar study with a compilation of 60,000 patients by one of my heroes, Malcolm Kendrick and Ravnaskov. Ufi Ravnaskov. In, in that group also, the higher the LDL cholesterol, the higher the total cholesterol, lower was the cardiovascular mortality, lower was the all-cause mortality. You go to some small, very well-designed studies like the Leiden study, the town of Leiden, they took a thousand patients over 85 years of age and followed them for 10 years. So 85 years of age would be a high-risk group for getting heart disease and dying. And in that group, the people with the highest cholesterol, 300 and above, had the longest chances of living, the lower risks of cancer mortality, the lower risk of infections. The people with the lowest cholesterol, 200 and below, had the greatest risk of dying, had a higher cancer mortality, had a higher risks of dying from pneumonias. So there is a lot of demographic information that directly contradicts that low cholesterol is good for you. Now there is further information and that information comes from clinical trials done by statin manufacturers. So when I talk about statin trials, one has to be truthful and honest. These trials are pharmaceutical industry funded. The pharmaceutical industry hires a team of experts, a workforce, statisticians, ghostwriters, and they collect all the data 
and they present the data to the FDA. This data is not something that a third party individual could verify and say that they are accurate. So pharmaceutical industry definitely has a conflict of interest in making their data look good. In addition to that, up until 2006, a pharmaceutical industry could, go, could do 10 different trials with one drug and simply use the one trial that showed its drug in the best light and ignore the other nine. Only since 2006, when new clinical trial guidelines came on, that the pharmaceutical industry is now forced to dis disclose all the trials that are, they are doing, whether they publish them or no, at least publish them on the internet. But let's say you grant them that they are honest, that they are ethical. And we know they have not been because there have been several instances like the Vioxx scandal in which several billion dollars were given by Merck and many others that they have been untruthful, they have hidden data, they have manipulated data, but let's say they have been honest in all the published trials and you just pick up the best clinical trial that they have had, by far the one that showed the most robust improvement in mortality. You have to go back to 1994, that's the 4S trial in which patients with previous heart disease that means they either had a heart attack or had stents or had bypass surgery or clear cut evidence of having heart disease. And when these people were evaluated, the benefit in terms of mortality reduction, in other words, you treat 100 patients for a year, you will reduce 0.6 deaths. So what that means is that 99.4% would not benefit 0.6% would benefit after treatment for one year in terms of mortality reduction. Now that's a small absolute risk reduction. And if I were honest, and if I wanted to do the right thing for the community that you are caring for, and I think pharmaceutical industry should consider people that they are treating as their community, that's what they should say. They should not change that into a relative risk reduction and say there is a 42% reduction in a combined endpoint of death and myocardial infarction because that is not truthful. Just like my hero Malcolm Kedrick says, a ridiculous example would be winning the Texas Lotto. The chances of winning the Texas Lotto is one in 15 million. And if somebody comes and tells you that you, they, they're gonna double your risks, improve it by 100%. All they're doing is, is going from one in 15 million to two in 15 million. That is the relative increase. You're doubling it, you're increasing it by 100%. But the absolute increase is still relatively small. So whenever a physician is faced with evaluating the benefit of a clinical trial, looking at relative risk reduction, this statistical jargon that physicians are not used to looking at, their mind gets clouded. The patient's mind gets clouded. Now let's leave the small absolute risk reduction for a minute. And let's move on from 1994 to 2017, 2018, and put 2008 in the middle. In 2008, there was a clinical trial done called the Jupiter study. The LDL cholesterol in the forest trial was reduced by 25%. In the Jupiter study, the LDL cholesterol was reduced by over 50%. Now these patients, mind you, were not um, secondary prevention, they were primary prevention. But wouldn't it surprise you that when they enrolled roughly about 18,000 patients, that the reduction in mortality was less than half a percent, less than half a percent over two and a half years. So in other words, if you were to translate that data on a per year basis, the reduction in mortality would be 0.2 to 0.3%. Now, I may be off a little bit on these numbers because I've not looked at them recently, but I'm pretty much in the ballpark. Let's move to 2017-18 timeframe in which the Fourier trial was done. This was a trial, I think, in a whopping 28,000 patients, 28,000. The LDL cholesterol, which in a middle-aged person would be probably in the mid-120s to 150s, who's not following a low-carb diet, the LDL cholesterol in the treatment group was 30 milligrams per deciliter. 
three zero milligrams per deciliter, you know, ballpark. Wouldn't you agree that that's a whopping reduction? When compared to the control group, the LDL cholesterol was lower by a whopping 60%, 60%. When you take 14,000 patients and you follow them for over a year, and you're reducing their LDL cholesterol by 60 plus percent, dropping it down to 30 milligrams per deciliter, wouldn't you think that you should show mortality benefit? What if you come out with a trial like the Fourier trial and show no mortality benefit at the end? What does that tell you? That tells you that it has been an abject failure. On the other hand, it is promoted as a trial of great success because there was a marginal benefit in reducing myocardial infarction in a clinical trial that is riddled with inconsistencies and all kinds of conflict of interest. So I'm frankly shocked at our colleagues, Greg, as to why we don't have the critical thinking ability to say, what are we doing wrong? Why are we going down this path in which maybe my whole paradigm that the LDL is bad is perhaps wrong? Now I can argue again from the standpoint of insulin resistance as well, but I wanna give you an opportunity to chime in here. Well, I think the reason is that doctors are so busy, they don't have time to look into this deeply themselves. You know, we're told in our whole medical career and cholesterol is a great example and there's, there's many others, but you know, the, using cholesterol now that cholesterol is bad and that's what we know, cholesterol is bad. We're so busy in day-to-day and in our day-to-day lives, we don't ever question that or look into it more deeply as you just so eloquently laid out. And when you do start looking into things a little more deeply, what I've done in my career now is that I find question marks on not only cholesterol, but other things in medicine that were, you know, quote, quote the norm. I, I wish more doctors would look at it more objectively, again, like you just laid out, but Unfortunately, they just have the blinders on and say, nope, cholesterol is bad. So anyway, so I want to ask you a little bit more about LDL because I know, especially with people who do kind of a lower carb, higher fat type of a diet, the LDL, uh, just the plain LDL on a standard cholesterol panel might not give you the full picture. And so I know there's different particle sizes of the LDL, kind of the big fluffy uh, particles uh, versus the smaller, maybe more atherogenic particles. How important is that? Just talk about the, the LDL particle size for a minute. Sure. I think that the bang for your buck when you're looking at lipoprotein quality. So in other words, we are looking at a lipoprotein profile, cholesterol profile, you may call it. So LDL, HDL, triglycerides. So triglycerides is a reflection of fat in the blood. Now that's basically the father of LDL, which is called VLDL, but it is spit out in your labs as triglycerides. So most of the information that you can get about a lipoprotein profile will come from a very simple test, which is just a garden variety lipoprotein profile without having to go into particle size, particle number, um, large and fluffy versus small and dense, and we'll get into that as well. So to me, a good cholesterol quality or a good lipoprotein quality is when your triglycerides are low. Triglycerides is fat and blood. So the human body is designed in such a way that it does not want to leave triglycerides hanging in the bloodstream. When you eat fat, it's amazing that I did not know this up until recently. I mean, that means a few years ago, that the body deals with fat very differently than it deals with carbs and protein. So carbs and protein from our digestive tract are diverted towards the portal circulation. They go to the liver. Whereas fat gets into the lymphatics, into the lymphatic system as chylomicrons, and it gets dumped directly into the systemic circulation. It gets into a bloodstream bypassing the liver. And the reason for that is that that fat should have a very short residence time in our bloodstream. What happens is that it goes to the fat cells The fat gets dumped into the fat cells. The chylomicrons shrink in size. They're cleared by the liver. Should be really a few minutes. It is when you become unhealthy, when your fat cells are overstuffed, like in an insulin-resistant state, is that the fat cells say we are already full, we cannot take up any more, and your triglycerides go up in the bloodstream. Now, that is a bad lipoprotein profile. Going on a low-carb, high-fat diet 
reverses that in most people. As the triglycerides go down, your HDL, which is considered to be the good cholesterol, goes up. But paradoxically, as people follow a low-carb diet, that means they are becoming healthier, they are losing weight, their sugars are getting better, they are getting more insulin sensitive. What that means is that they need a lower amount of insulin to keep their blood sugars in control. So in other words, when they eat protein or carbs, their insulin does not rise to the same degree because insulin is more effective. In that situation, your LDL instead of going down is actually going to go up. So as a person is getting healthier, in other words, everybody, all physicians would agree with you and me that having low triglycerides is better. All physicians would agree with you and me that having high HDL is better. They will also agree with us that being insulin sensitive, that is having lower insulin levels and handling sugar, in other words, keeping your sugars low at low insulin levels is good. So here is the paradox. As you become insulin sensitive, your LDL by design, by biology is going to go up. Why is it that we are not recognizing this paradigm? Because if I give you an option, would you rather be insulin sensitive or insulin resistant? Which one would you choose? Obviously you would choose to be insulin sensitive. If I give you an example, you take a group of 100 diabetics and you age match and control another 100 people of the same age, the same weight, but these group is not a diabetic. Which group do you think will have a lower LDL, it would be the diabetic group, not the non-diabetic group. So why is this a paradox in our mind that LDL is bad in the setting of insulin sensitivity is something I cannot understand. Now, another thing that gets thrown out is that, hey, look, you know, your LDL has gone up, but really what you're going to do is you're going to change that LDL from small and dense, which is bad to large and fluffy. And that is good. But unfortunately, I've been doing this for about eight years. And I can readily tell you that once the LDL gets into the 200s, and it'll get into the 200s, if you're very good at low-carb diet, you're very good at fasting, you're becoming insulin sensitive, the LDLC and the LDLP, which is the particle number, are going to move concordantly. Your LDLP is going to go up. That means your particle number is going to go up your LDLC is going to go up, your large and fluffy cholesterol is going to go up. In other words, you're going to have more fluffy molecules. But if you look at the absolute number of small and dense particles, that is also going to go up. So I think it's kind of an oxymoron. It is like people are led to believe that LDL is so bad that they are completely ignoring the fact that this is our biology. This is how our body is designed. That when you become insulin sensitive, barring certain situations in which people eat a certain type of diet, if you're eating the diet that is optimal for us, which is predominantly an animal-based diet, you're losing weight, you're becoming insulin sensitive, your LDL is going to go up. And that is going to be the mechanism. And you just have to deal and work with this paradigm. Is LDL bad for you? And that's what is left to the lower carb community to prove. And I think the way we're going to prove that is going to take a large population of patients who are insulin sensitive, who have low triglycerides, whose LDL is high, and demonstrate that there is lack of progression of coronary artery disease. Do I have that information? No, I don't. Do I have information anecdotally on that in patients that I have followed for a number of years? Yes, I do. Is it a large enough number of people that I can say for sure? No, I can't. That is where our healthcare dollars should go. That's where we should be doing investigation in which we take a large number of patients with high LDL, insulin sensitive, low triglycerides, do serial calcium scores of their coronary arteries and demonstrate that there is not a progression. So... I want to make sure people caught this because you are an interventional cardiologist and you just said that we should eat a mostly animal-based diet. Is, is that correct? Yes. <laughs> and I agree uh, with you. I just wanted to make sure people caught that. Um, I, um, 
I researched that a lot. And I have even got a YouTube video, which is called an optimal diet for humans. And I have made a very good argument, I think, a lawyerly argument, if you may permit me to say that, based on expensive tissue hypothesis, based on the biology of our gut, based on the fact that we have a very large absorptive surface, which is the small intestines, that we have very little processing capability, that our bodies are designed to eat high quality nutrients in order to support our brain, which takes roughly 20 to 25% of calories that you eat. Uh, so we have a very large processing power and we need high quality nutrient dense and calorie dense food. And that can only be obtained through animal food. And there are several nutrients like vitamin B12, like the omega-3 fats, and many others, many amino acids that are simply not found in plant-based food. In fact, if you have a vegan right now, and that vegan refuses to take supplements for B12, for um, perhaps iron, for perhaps the omega-3 fatty acids, and a few other supplements that their health is really going to go down the tubes. So yes, you heard me right. I, okay. I recommend to my patients <laughs> to eat a predominantly yeah. animal-based diet. And I think that's fantastic. And that's a, a whole whole other podcast we could we could do. But uh, uh, for the sake of time, I'll, I'll try to wrap this up. But I, I do want to go back to cholesterol for just a minute. And so I talked about this with Jimmy Moore a few episodes ago. We were talking about cholesterol and stuff. But let me tell you what I do and the way I think and tell me if I'm wrong. And this will also hopefully help the listeners so when I look at a standard cholesterol panel, which is what most people are getting, and you mentioned the triglycerides being the most important. So I shoot for a triglyceride to HDL ratio of one to one or less. And if we can get the triglyceride to HDL ratio, a one to one, then that's a very good indicator that you're pretty metabolically healthy. And especially if we, we do a fasting insulin level and your fasting insulin level is low. So if we have those parameters there, I don't care what your LDL is, especially your overall cholesterol and people get caught up on that. But if your triglyceride to HDL ratio is, is low, uh, to me, the LDL is irrelevant. Is that a correct statement? You know, you and I belong in the same camp. And I think that uh, I agree with you. The conventional wisdom is that your triglyceride HDL ratio should be less than two. And I think that is way too generous. I would like it to be as close to one as possible, just like you are saying. And I'm in the same camp that tells people that, hey, I think that LDL in this situation, higher is better. But I qualify that by telling that I don't know for sure because I don't want to pretend that I know everything and I want to make sure that I give informed consent to my patients. So I would say that, hey, look, I think that somebody like you should be monitored for serial, those serial calcium studies, make sure that you're not building plaque. And if you're building plaque, then let's investigate that further as to why it is happening. Is, are there some other factors we are ignoring? Are we ignoring sleep? Are we ignoring a fight or flight response that you are constantly in the midst of? rather than being in a calm state. Um, if you don't sleep, if you're constantly in a sympathetically aroused or a fight or flight state. In other words, I wanna make sure people understand that there are so many facets that can lead to heart disease and that we are addressing some of them and we should holistically approach one another. So I endorse your view and I agree with you. Okay, very good. Is, is mainstream cardiology, is the American Heart Association ever going to change their views? I'm just a peon family practice doctor. They're not going to listen to me, but you know they, they're going to listen to you. So uh, are you making any waves in this area? No, not at all. I think that I'm ostracized. I don't think that the Heart Association would really love somebody like me. And I think that I have been given a lot of uh, grief my position over time from my colleagues and I've been reported and stuff like that. Somehow I'm dealing with that. I think that change in medicine is not going to come from top down. 
it's not the associations one day going to wake up and say, hey, sorry, we were wrong all these years. And by the way, this is the right. The change in medicine is going to come from a grassroots effort. It's going to be people like you and I, along with our patients who are going to demonstrate to the heart association that following uh, an intermittent fasting, low carb exercise lifestyle that has led to this lipoprotein profile is the most ideal health for humans. And it's only when we prove that is when the heart association is going to change and perhaps turn around and say, hey, we knew that all along and we just worded it differently. That's, that's how it's going to come about. So one last question, we don't have to spend a lot of time on this, but I think we both agree that statins are way overprescribed, but is there a population who can actually benefit from statin use? So I don't pretend to tell any of my patients whether they should use statins or no. I find it that the right practitioner, the physician who is right, would always do an informed consent. So this is my approach. Like, let's say I see a patient who is middle-aged, between 40 and 60 years of age. He's a male, he's had stents. Then I take out the forest trial, I describe the forest trial to him and I tell him that this was the degree of absolute risk reduction. These are the potential risks that you have from myopathy, cognitive dysfunction, insulin resistance, and that the diet that I'm giving you invariably is going to make you insulin sensitive, but perhaps increase your LDL. And here is your decision. It's a shared decision making. It's informed consent. That's the right way to behave. Now, let's reverse the roles. Let's pretend that I am the patient and my physician is giving me this information. He's telling me about the forest trial and telling me the small absolute risk reduction from taking statins. He's talking about the side effects. He's talking about the biology between insulin resistance and LDL cholesterol. He's telling me, Dr. Ali, you're probably going to be on this medicine for 30 years. Let's say your lifespan is another 30 years. I know for sure that I'm going to choose not to take that medicine. So as physicians, when you're prescribing a medicine for 30 years, I think that it is our role to do an informed consent by presenting out all this information and do a shared decision between you and the patient. So that is my stance on it. And I don't think I should ever change that. And it's up to the patient. There are some patients who decide to take it and I'm willing to prescribe it. And there are many who decide not to take it. And I rejoice and support their decision. Maybe I will be chastised for that. Maybe I'll be taken to court. Maybe I'll be even you know, taken my license revoked. But I think that if you look at the ethics of medicine, that is the right way to practice it. Very good. So in summary, I think we could say cholesterol isn't necessarily all bad. Definitely, you need to work on your metabolic health, with the, which I've preached on this podcast over and over again. Uh, you can do that through, as you've mentioned, a lower carb type of a diet, intermittent fasting, exercise, all the things you mentioned. Uh, and, and I tell patients this all the time, and I've mentioned this before on the pod, podcast, is for patients to do their own research. If a doctor is recommending a medication, you have every right to question that you know, do your own research and, and be informed. That's what I tell patients. So, um, well, awesome. Well, any, anything else about cholesterol that you'd like to say that, that I didn't ask? Now, I think that we had a very robust and very lively one hour discussion that I thoroughly enjoyed. And yes, I hope very that much so. uh, I don't get ostracized and prosecuted for this because I'm doing my best and I'm trying to practice as ethically as I can. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you've seen in your practice, as I have in mind, that you're actually helping people. And, uh, you, you know, it, it's got to make you feel good to to actually, you know, help people and see them, you know, reverse a lot of their illnesses and not just end up, you know, in the in the cath lab. I mean, that's that's got to be rewarding. It is. It, it gives me a sense of purpose. And you're right about that. Well, OK, well, um, so I always uh, wrap up by asking my guest to give us one health tip that can just make us healthier today. Uh, what would you say to that? And it can be anything. Well, let, let me let me go on to my new challenge that I am uh, approaching. And that is that I'm working on sleep, heart rate, resting heart rate, and heart rate variability. So don't ignore your sleep. Because if you have lack of sleep, 
you are in a fight or flight mode the next day. And sometimes chronically you are in a fight or flight mode. A fight or flight mode is a sympathetic arousal and arousal as if you are constantly on edge. And that increases the risk of insulin resistance, high blood pressure, degenerative vascular and chronic diseases. So you have mastered the diet, you've mastered intermittent fasting, you've mastered movement, but don't ignore your sleep and your other health parameters that are related to sleep, which is your heart rate and heart rate variability. So consider monitoring that. What doesn't get measured does not get corrected. I monitor my sleep with an aura ring. There are multiple other devices, investigate that. You and I, uh, Greg, are on a journey of holistic medicine. We are treating the whole human and we are not just treating one aspect of diet or fasting or exercise. So that's yeah. my message, if it's of any worth. Yeah, great advice. And uh, I not too long ago did a, a podcast on Whoop, which is another wearable uh, similar to the Aura Ring. You can track all that. And so if people want to listen to that, they can they can go back. Uh, well, very good. So uh, how can people find you? I know you have a website, uh, www.eatmostlyfat.com. Are there any other ways? Are you on Instagram or YouTube or what? Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm on YouTube. Uh, we are most popular on YouTube. You have Nadir Ali MD. Uh, if you put that in the search bar, you will get all my YouTube videos. If you go to Eat Mostly Fats and send an email, you can contact my office. You can also call my office directly. Just look up my number in Google and call our office directly. Uh, I love doing what I'm doing. I'm modulating my practice more towards doing consulting work uh, for clients like you, you are doing, uh, Greg, in which you are seeing a smaller number of patients uh, so in other words, I offer an hour of consultation online to people who have questions. Um, I'm getting very busy in that. So it's not like I'm seeking to have more, but if you need my services, I'm available. And unlike Greg, I'm getting towards the end of my career. So hopefully I'll be hanging up what I'm doing and maybe work on writing some books and disseminating information other ways. Very good. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Lee, for what you're doing. And we, it's, it's a very much needed uh, in, in our healthcare today. So thank you for that. And we uh, thank you for your time today. Thank you. All right, guys. Well, thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to FitRx. I invite you to share this with friends and family. If you would like, you can check out our website at vibrantlifedc.com or you can email me at Dr. Greg at vibrantlifedc.com.